Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm Michael Tracy, attorney at law, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Hopefully you're enjoying your 4th of July weekend, even though 4th of July was middle of the week, and this is uh, this is the weekend. So a little bit uh, of an odd uh, week this last uh, week, but uh, given that it is a, a patriotic holiday, this uh, week our subject is uh, going to be a service members and veterans' rights for employment and then post-employment in terms of disability and uh, benefits that they can uh, receiver are entitled to. So normally the uh, scope of this show is labor and employment related legal issues. Uh, This uh, week we're going to depart from that a little bit in that for the first half hour we are going to discuss employment issues, that is what are service members and veterans rights for reinstatement upon coming back from leave in terms of being uh, free from discrimination and job hiring and things like that. And uh, in the second half, we're going to cover something that's not employment related. This is where a veteran is entitled to certain benefits or has been uh, disabled and is uh, seeking service connectivity for that uh, for that injury. Uh, what the process is to go through that to get those benefits and what happens when you're denied those benefits on appeal. That's some work that I do on the side as a pro bono uh service and I can only take a couple cases per year but we'll talk about what other organizations are out there that can help you with your claims what are involved with those claims and for the general public who is not a uh, disabled veteran or a veteran seeking uh, benefits it's also very interesting to see what veterans have to go through in order to get some of the benefits that they are entitled to what type of hurdles the government throws up and makes uh, veterans jump through in order to get these benefits and why uh, there's sort of a growing discontent among uh, some veterans groups in terms of how these things are being handled doesn't really relate to Walter Reed or anything like that because those are all uh, you know for people in current active uh, duty service uh, the benefits that we're talking about are going to talk about in the second half of the show are more for uh, post uh, post separation and where you need to discover something later in your life that uh, that had uh, been caused by an incident that occurred during your uh, during your military service. So for the first half hour, uh, labor and employment issues, and then the second half hour, sort of the pro bono segment in terms of uh, medical and disability things. So a little bit different this week, but uh, we will stick to our same format. We do have some administrative uh topics to cover from uh, questions from uh, the previous weeks. It seems like a lot of people listen to on the podcast and submit their questions rather late in the week, and then we sort of get to the questions in the uh, the following week segment. So a couple uh, couple issues from from last week where we had talked about hostile work environments and uh, sexual harassment. I don't know how many times I said it in the, in the previous week or in previous broadcasts, but I will say it again. It is perfectly 100% legal for the employer to yell at you, scream at you, berate you, make fun of you in front of customers, spread rumors about you in the uh, in the office. All of that is perfectly legal unless it relates to one of the protected uh, characteristics. And those are age, ancestry, color, religion, disability, marital status, gender, sexual orientation, certain medical conditions, or if you're a whistleblower or complaining about uh, some type of um, labor and employment issue or taking a family a medical leave or something like that. Those are the only protected characteristics. So if your boss is yelling at you and he's just a mean person, again, not illegal, perfectly legal. You don't need an attorney to tell you that you don't have a case for that. You may have a great case for unpaid overtime. You may have a great case for a missed meal breaks. And we sort of talked about that in the wage and hour broadcast where a lot of people who don't have claims for their boss being a jerk do bring claims for unpaid overtime and meal breaks and things like that. And in fact, in one of the cases we're going to cover here next, we're going to see that that's exactly what's happening. Um, so, so in any case, I keep getting questions with all these horrible stories about uh, the mean things that the bosses are doing to them and 
90% of the time, it's perfectly legal. If you do send in a question about mean things the boss is doing to you, please identify which one of those protected characteristics they are singling you out for. So if they only yell at women in the office or they only yell at Asians in the office, that is illegal. That is discrimination. That is harassment. That is creating a hostile work environment. And you may have a legal right to seek redress for that. But if they yell at everybody, if the boss is just a mean person, then perfectly legal. Also, if you're treated unfairly in the office for some reason other than one of these, um, a lot of the, the questions I get are, I am the top selling person, so I'm the top salesperson for this company, and yet I don't uh, receive the recognition, I'm receiving a demotion, I'm receiving a transfer to an unfavorable assignment. Well, that's perfectly legal. There's nothing that requires the employer to act fairly with regards to how they run their business, with the exception of those protected characteristics. So. If they're sending all the people who are 45 years old off to the Alaskan sales office, then you probably have a claim. But if they're simply sending you there because the boss doesn't like you, you didn't show up to his wedding reception, uh, whatever it is that uh, for whatever reason he doesn't like you, perfectly legal. Even if you're the best per person in the company, even if you can prove it, even if you have a signed statement from you know, the past HR manager, the past president of the company saying you're the best employee in the world, and now you're receiving a demotion, unless that demotion is caused by one of these protected characteristics, it's perfectly legal and there's no reason to go out and uh, and get an attorney for it. You know, there may be other reasons if you have a contract with them or if it violates your union agreement, you may have a claim. But for the vast majority of the stuff that people are sending in still, uh, please check to see whether it's uh, covered by one of those protected uh, characteristics. So the other thing I want to get to is a news item that uh, sort of covers this, uh, some of the stuff that, that we've been talking about. And that is this case of uh, Hammond versus uh, Mantra Films. Uh, it's been in the news in the, in the last week. The case was filed, I think, uh, first part of July. This is the Girls Gone Wild case, essentially a sales uh, person that was employed by Mantra Films, which is, I guess, one of the uh, companies that uh, is part of the Girls Gone Wild, the worldwide empire of uh, you know documentary films about uh, w women and uh, their spring break escapades. So this case is pretty interesting because it really brings it's bringing two main causes of action. One is for sexual harassment and the other is a class action for wage and hour violations, unpaid overtime, meal breaks, and pay stub violations. And it's very interesting because it sort of highlights a lot of the stuff we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks because, you know, when we get into, I want to cover briefly what it is that uh, she's alleging for sexual harassment. So this is a good example of, of, of actual sexual harassment. This is what uh, Ms. Hammond is alleging in the complaint. She is a female alleging uh, harassment from a male manager. And basic, I'll read it straight from the complaint. On numerous, on numerous occasions, defendant Ron uh, stated to plaintiff, you look nice. Can I call you? Uh, clearly, that's, that would be just by itself, you look nice, can I call you in one instance would not really be sexual harassment. Uh, but on a repeated time, as I say, numerous occasions, that would give rise to a, a hostile work environment. Next one, on numerous occasions, defendant Ron touched and massaged named plaintiff's shoulders and arms. Clearly, an unwanted touching like that would be, uh, would be sexual harassment. Numerous occasions, defendant Ron purposely conversed about the topic of sex in front of uh, the plaintiff. Okay, well, maybe he's doing that, uh, clearly sexual harassment. On several occasions, defendant Ron told named plaintiff, I don't know why I like you so much. Well, that's a, a another one of these. We're taken in, in isolation by itself. If that was the only allegation in this complaint, probably wouldn't be sufficient. But uh, in you know context of the slew of other things that uh, she's alleging here, it uh, does indicate a hostile work environment. 
On at least one occasion, defendant Ron tapped uh, plaintiff's buttocks with a clipboard. Okay, that one's pretty straightforward. And uh, basically, the, the main thing is, on or about November 2005, plaintiff complained to uh, Robert, which is a manager of uh, Mantra Films and Girl Gone Wild, about the harassing be- behavior towards her. And then she alleged that basically they, nothing was done about it and that they retaliated against her by criticizing her work to a degree harsher than they did for other people and harsher than they did previously and that eventually they ended up firing her, which if you listen to a wrongful termination is an extremely important thing because always hold out until they fire you because if you quit, raising the issue of constructive discharge is very hard. So in this case, uh, it appears that the plaintiff suffered through quite a bit of abuse for about a year, and eventually they terminated her. And in this case, we can see where she is alleging that she was criticized and Uh, you know, basically treated poorly by the management. But she specifically says it's because of her gender. It was because she was not only a female, but because she raised the complaint of that they were harassing her. She lodged a sexual harassment complaint with the company. And then it was after that complaint that the degree of harshness in the criticism of her escalated. So again, like we talked at the beginning of the broadcast, they are allowed to yell at you. They are allowed to belittle you. They are allowed to make fun of you. That's perfectly legal. But if it's in response to something, you know, raising a, a sexual harassment claim with the company, then that makes it illegal. So if it's, a, you know, essentially a whistleblower or some type of a complaint that you had raised, and then after that, all of these, uh, you know, unprofessional behaviors and belittlements and everything start coming your way, then that is uh, that is illegal. But just by itself, that's that's not. So in any case, that'll be a, I'm sure that story will be in the news. We'll cover it in a little bit more depth if there's anything interesting to it. I will point out one thing that uh, from an attorney's perspective, and you may find this interesting as well in reading it. Basically, it's they always name the defendant, defendant Ron. They apparently don't know the last name of the person who was doing all this harassing, which maybe indicates that they have some problems with their case. I mean, if you worked there for a year and this person was repeatedly harassing you and you don't know what his full name was and you can't find out by simply calling the company or asking some somebody, probably some issues with the case. And that's also probably why, if you, if you read down in the complaint, there is a sexual harassment claim, but there is also a class action claim for overtime meal penalties and, and PASTA violations. And usually you see those when you don't have a really solid case for a sexual harassment or something like that, and there is a solid case for unpaid overtime. Uh, your overtime case is going to be much better because it's going to be much harder for the company to defend, much more likely for you to succeed on, especially in a class action case like this. I don't I don't know if these companies would be big enough for a class action uh, a lawsuit. You generally need a large number of uh, you know, injured, aggrieved employees, at least over 40 as a general rule of thumb. And I don't know if these companies are big enough to uh, to have that. And, you know, there were other some other procedural issues that may give this uh, plaintiff difficulty in pursuing a class action. But uh, it does indicate that uh, that maybe there's some problems with their with their main case in chief and they want a backup to fall on to in terms of, you know, some solid wage and hour claims that can uh, that you can nail the company for. So you, you do have those. And that's why you also see more of these wage and hour claims being brought forward is because, you know, maybe uh, if, if she can't prove all of the allegations in this complaint and she fails on her sexual harassment claims, then she can always fall back on her uh, wage and hour claim. So she's clearly upset with this company about something. How much of it she can prove is going to determine how much money she ultimately gets from the company. But, uh, you know, that's essentially a very interesting uh, wage and hour and sexual harassment uh, case. So we'll follow it as it uh, as it goes through its cycle. 
One thing I frequently get asked is, how long does a lawsuit like this take? And that depends on how aggressive your attorney is in pursuing it. So in a case like this, this is not an extremely complex, I mean, a sexual harassment and a, and a wage and hour claim, not a very difficult lawsuit. I mean, either she proves the stuff that's in the complaint, she either has some testimonies or email or, uh, you know, somebody saw it. I mean, it, she, you can just go on the stand and testify yourself. If the jury believes you, you're going to win. It always helps if you have a witness on your side. And we had talked before about how you, you know, get your co-employees to support your claims via email while you still work there. Because once you no longer work there, you can, you know, you should pretty much rely that they're going to testify against you. So in any case, uh, you know, even if she proves all this stuff in here, a very straightforward lawsuit, the overtime stuff would be uh, would be pretty straightforward. This lawsuit should be able to make its way to trial, you know, barring the class action stuff, uh, which... Like I said, I you know I don't know why they alleged it in there. Maybe it's a valid class action. Maybe it's not. But if it was just the individual employee's claim with no class action allegations, it should go to trial in less than a year. Most likely, it would not go to trial. I mean, the statistics are about only 4% of cases that are filed make it to trial. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Maybe they weren't... Uh, that uh, solid, maybe they were frivolous lawsuits, or the, the parties could simply get together and say the cost of litigation isn't worth uh, pursuing this all the way to trial, or maybe it's a very solid lawsuit and the defendant simply wants to uh, wants to pay it. But in this case, uh, you know, a lawsuit like that should make its way through to trial uh, within a year. Frequently, it does not because the attorneys on both sides delay it for whatever reason. But if you don't have any valid reasons to delay your lawsuits and you do instruct your attorneys to push the thing through as quickly as possible, uh, you do have uh, an expectation to have a trial within one year of when you file the lawsuit. So as long as you stay on top of all your procedural issues, it does move along pretty quickly and uh, you can get your day in court uh, much faster than most people think. So that's it for the uh, for the news items. One more follow up question from last week, and then we'll get into uh, veterans uh, and service members rights for employment. And that was last week. We also talked about uh, the truck driver exemptions and there was some confusion about that. I would just uh, you know go online and uh, check out uh, the website. We have the link to the truck driver's uh, exemption. If you do have any uh, questions or concerns, the website is www.laborlawradio.com, and our telephone number here is 888-678-7229. So the best way to do is uh, submit email questions, and I can uh, sort of pick out uh, the, the subject and you know bring it up on the uh, following week's broadcast if you weren't uh, if you weren't listening live on the radio because I realize the radio only covers uh, the northern section of California, so a lot of people. In other parts of the state, uh, listen to the uh, podcast, and that's where they get uh, get the information. So in any case, uh, the truck driving question related to this interstate commerce exemption uh, for both federal and state law. So again, state law largely depends on the weight of the truck. If it's a gross uh, weight rating of 26,000 pounds or more, for California overtime, you're automatically exempt. Uh, for federal overtime, it always depends on whether the products you are carrying are being shipped in, in interstate commerce. And there were some questions about what interstate commerce meant. And to answer that, as I said, interstate commerce is anything where the goods are being transported across state line as part of a continuous movement. So clearly, if you're the truck driver and you drive the goods across state line, that's clearly interstate commerce. You started in Phoenix, you drove to Los Angeles, clearly you were you know, conducting goods across state line. But the other cases where the goods sort of 
let's say they come in on a train from Phoenix and you pick up the the box off the train station in Los Angeles and then you deliver it to the factory, the local factory in Los Angeles, and you never in your life drive out of the state of California. That is still interstate commerce because the goods were shipped as part of a continuous shipment. But if the train comes into Los Angeles and they're unloaded and they sit in a warehouse for a couple months and they wait for an order to come in. And when the order comes in, you pick it up at the warehouse and deliver it to the factory in Los Angeles. That's not a continuous shipment. They don't have to sit there for a couple months. They could sit there for a couple minutes. It's anything where the, the final destination of the goods isn't known at the time it leaves its uh, or origination point. So if in Phoenix, if there's an order for a company in Los Angeles and you carry those goods as any part of delivering that order, then that's interstate commerce. But if Phoenix is simply delivering to a warehouse in Los Angeles and they don't know where it's going inside Los Angeles, and then at some point in the future they find out where it's going inside Los Angeles and you pick those goods up and deliver it, that final destination point, because it was unknown at the time of origin, at the time the goods were originally shipped, that leg is not part of interstate commerce. I know it sounds crazy, and you're like, what does all this have to do with whether a truck driver is entitled to overtime pay or not? Uh, as I said, it's simply a function of the law. The law was created way back, I mean, the Interstate Commerce Act, I believe, was 1935. There were a couple amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it was trying to determine what Congress could and could not regulate. Uh, currently, Congress is generally interpreted to have ex extremely expansive powers. They can regulate basically anything they want. But in the history of uh, the country, there was a great debate about what Congress could and could not regulate. And it was generally accepted back in the 1930s that Congress could not regulate commerce that was exclusively inside one state. And that unless there was some solid connection between the goods coming from outside of a state to inside of another state, Congress had no authority to regulate the wages of those truck drivers. So today, we don't see that. Congress uh, regulates all sorts of things. But uh, that particular portion of the law has remained intact since the 1930s. And, uh, you know, that's why we see the, these oddities with with truck drivers. So a bit of anachronism, but, uh, you know, that's what the, the law is, is full of. Uh, you know, especially for for truck drivers exemptions. So in any case, let's uh, move off of the administrative stuff and get into this week's subject of, you know, veterans and service members rights as they relate to uh, employment. So first, as a little background, I don't do a lot of veterans, uh, you know, employment right lawsuits very, I don't think I've ever filed a lawsuit on behalf of a veteran for you know having their rights infringed upon most of the time the employer was simply unaware of what the law was and once you inform them what it is they're more than happy to comply with it some of these are a little bit esoteric i mean the employer is required to uh, provide this information to you or post it in an area which you do have available so it's not a good faith defense that they didn't know what the law is but in a good number of cases you simply need some type of uh, educating of the employer and they do comply with these laws so it's not a, a rich area for litigation and everything like that but once you if, if you need to be aware of what your rights are first of all and then you can educate the employer there are some military programs that uh, help the uh, military mediate these things if there is a legitimate dispute and the employer doesn't feel such and such a benefit is entitled to the military uh, attorneys can help you uh, mediate that in a couple cases i've helped out with uh, you know, mediating these things or instructing the employer in terms of what uh, their legal obligations are. So I am a, a veteran myself. I had uh, served uh, back in, 
let me say I went in in 1990, I believe, um, during the uh, first Gulf War. I did not serve in the first Gulf War. I was stationed over in uh, Korea at the time. I was in the infantry. I was a, a M60 machine gunner. And so what's uh, what's an M60? The M60 is the air-cooled, belt-fed, gas-operated machine gun, which fires 100-round metallic split-link disintegrating belts of your choice of ball-blank dummy tracing or armor-piercing rounds at a cyclical rate of fire of 550 rounds per minute to a maximum effective range of 1,100 meters. You got that? Okay, it's been a while since I've given that speech in the uh, in the Army, but uh, in any case, that was uh, that was my experience in the military, and now I... Uh, uh, help out uh, some veterans with their uh, disability claims and things like that that we'll cover in the second half of the hour. Uh, for now, I just want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, employment rights. And we'll start with, uh, you know, your rights in terms of being hired. Uh, one of the uh, protected characteristics that uh, that you are, that it is illegal to discriminate against is your military status. So if you apply for a job, uh, they aren't allowed to take your military status into, uh, into any regard in terms of, of hiring you. So you don't see this too much, but obviously with a lot of the call-ups that are coming on in the military, uh, employers are concerned that you know if they do hire somebody and then six weeks later they get called up to be deployed for a year, that can adversely affect their uh, you know their their economic situation, the employer. And so you do see some employers who are hesitant to uh, to hire uh, active duty or you know people who are in the reserves. So that is a that is a growing problem because of the large number of deployments, and you do need to be conscientious about it. So, I mean, if you think you've been uh, denied hiring because of your military status, that would be uh, discrimination and that would be illegal. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to prove those because frequently you don't know why it was that um, that you weren't hired. Hopefully, uh, somebody inside the, the uh, employer would uh, you know be a whistleblower or, or do something to stop that. Uh, but, you know, it is difficult. Anytime it's a discrimination in the hiring, very difficult to prove because you don't always know exactly why it was that... Uh, uh, that you weren't hired, but specifically, if they start asking you questions about when was the last time you were deployed, oh, uh, you know, what type of, uh, what is your MOS, and, you know, are you a, something that might be deployed uh, in the near future? That would be a clear indication that they're going to discriminate against you, and you'd probably have a valid claim for that. But we don't, uh, fortunately, we don't see see a lot of that. So the next thing that you need to be aware of is once you're hired and you have your job, what are your rights in terms of being uh, reinstated once you go out. So once you get called up and you take a military leave, the first obligation is on you, though, and that is your right to provide notice to the employer that you are going to be deployed. This isn't really a a big deal. It should be more than common sense that if you're going to be you know, deployed for a long period of time or even a short period of time, you do need to give your employer some notice that you're going to be gone. You can't simply not show up on Monday and expect them to figure out what happened to you and, and know that you want your job back. So you do have to give them oral or written notice that you are going to be deployed. They do have a right to request a copy of your orders if your deployment is for more than 30 days. Uh, other than that, you don't have to give it to them. But in any case, it's always a good idea to, to inform them in writing uh, well in advance of when you're going to be deployed. Uh, that, that way, I mean, they can accommodate you as well. I mean, the goal here isn't to build a great lawsuit and sue the employer for lots of money. The goal is to get your job back and go on your life without, uh, you know, as seamlessly as possible. And to do that, it's best to give the employer as much time as possible to prepare for your departure and then prepare for your return so that they can hold this job open for you and you can get uh you know, get back into your job. So that's just, you know, common courtesy and the law and making sure that both the employer and the employee are doing the best that they can to make this as seamless a process as possible. 
months, but you do have to give advanced uh, oral or written notice that you are going to go on leave. Now, once you come back, then there are certain time limits that you have to act on in order to be entitled to your reinstatement uh, benefits. So basically, if you go on leave and you, if you go on military leave, when you come back, you're entitled to your same job, and we'll, we'll get exactly what that means in a little bit here. But you are, you know, when we're going to call these things are reinstatement rights. So your reinstatement rights, you can lose those if you don't act in a prompt fashion. So if you just go on your uh, two week deployment for the, uh, uh, you know, for the weekend warriors, the National Guard or uh, the Army Reserve, and you come back and you decide to take a six week vacation after that and you don't tell the employer and the employer doesn't approve it, well, you're not entitled to reinstatement. If your deployment is for less than 31 days, so 30 days or less, you have to come back to work the very next day. You get eight hours rest. You get you know, a reasonable rest period. But you have to show up for the next work day. And if you don't do that, then you lose your reinstatement rights. So if you just go two weeks away for summer, you need to show up on Monday ready to go to work and uh, request your job back. So if it's more than 31 days and less than 180 days, you have a two-week period. So the longer the deployment, you get more time. You can take a two-week vacation and then uh, get your job back after that. If it's more than 180 days, you've got a full 90 days in order to uh, demand your job back and keep your uh, reinstatement rights. Unless you're, uh, if you were injured while on active uh, duty service, then there's an extended period of time that can go up to two years. Hopefully that didn't happen to you. If there, if there are, there's a whole bunch of other issues in terms of your disability and being accommodated by the employer. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we get into what job you're entitled to when you come back. But, you know, basically, you know, depending on how long you were gone for, be sure you enforce your rights in a timely fashion. Tell your employer exactly when it is that you want to come back. Make sure it's within these uh, within these timelines. Now, the employer should have given you a piece of paper that explains all of this to you when you uh, you know when you leave for your leave, so that you'll you'll know what your rights are. They they can post them in a common area. But if you if you didn't, you can you know easily find this information online. I'll put links to it on the uh, Labor Law Radio. Uh, website, but uh, it's it's pretty uh, available out there on the on the internet, and most employers do give this to the uh, service members as they go out uh, for their service. So now, once you come back and you did meet the requirements, you promptly inform your employer that uh, you wanted their uh, you wanted your old job back, and you're ready, willing, and able to show up and take that job. Uh, the question is, is what job are you entitled to when you come back? And the rule is you're entitled to the same job that you would have had had you not gone on leave. So that creates a lot of issues, especially for extended periods of time. But for shorter periods of time, it's it's pretty simple to determine. And, and there is this boundary there in terms of this 90-day limit. So if you were on 90 days or less of active duty service as part of your military leave, then you're entitled to the same job that you would have had had you not taken that leave. And this is sometimes referred to as the escalator principle. And that is that in your job, you're sort of on this escalator where you're constantly climbing up the uh, the corporate ladder or the corporate escalator to, uh, to get up to the top. And, you know, as part of that, if you took, let's say you stepped off the escalator for 90 days to go on the military and then stepped back on, well, other people that started with you would, would be higher up in the, in the corporate hierarchy. In the corporate ladder, and what that does is, is it eliminates that in a sense. You puts you back on that escalator at the same spot you would have been if you hadn't had taken that uh, that ninety day leave or that two week leave or anything less than ninety days. So I've got to take a break here, but I'll pick it up on the other side of the hour in terms of exactly 
what issues come up with this escalator principle, and then we will get into the uh, the medical benefit side and the uh, Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims issues as well. So stay tuned, and we will be right back. 